Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tortoise. Welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. In this podcast, we look at some of the longer term trends behind the news headlines. We're interested in not just what's going on, but why something is happening and the forces shaping a particular trend or story. Now, from my base in Glasgow, I do this by keeping an eye on data and the poll numbers. I like to identify the things shaping public opinion that, if they're wise at least, politicians and policymakers ought to be taking into account as they make their decisions. I'm interested in what voters think and what that makes governments do or not do as I run a policy consultancy in Westminster. This week, our inaugural week, we're going to devote most of the podcast to what it's like to live in Britain today and what the attitudes are of the public. And that's because, as I'm sure everyone is aware of, it's publication day of the 40th annual British Social Attitudes Survey, the date that we all mark in our calendar uh, if we're interested in polling and public opinion. Uh, And it's produced by the National Centre for Social Research. And John, you're a senior fellow there. Yes, I am. The National Centre for Social Research, it's Britain's largest not-for-profit independent uh, social research institute. And it started British social attitudes all the way back in 1983, 40 years ago. And it's been going pretty much every year since. And the original idea behind it was, was essentially that Opinion polls do a very good job of telling us about public attitudes on things that are currently in the media, currently being talked about by politicians, but that what they're not so good at is looking at long-term trends in public opinion. So one of the attributes of British socialists from its beginning has been to keep on asking the same survey questions over time so that we can indeed get some idea how public opinion uh, has shifted in uh, the the long run. Probably the easiest way for people to think about this is that it is the public opinion version of the census. It is the tracker that you do very expensively and somewhat more occasionally that tries to look about at how the country is changing. And, and as I said, we're going to talk about this for much of the episode. But before we do, I wanted to have a quick discussion about... Liz Truss. And and the reason I wanted to talk about Liz Truss is not because she's the reason we're doing this podcast, but she is quite a good exemplification of why we think this podcast matters, because she's been back this week re-arguing her case for why she thinks she was right and others were wrong in her ill-fated government. This is not a view the public share uh, her poll ratings dipped very, very rapidly. By no less than six points in six weeks. Immediately Absolutely. after a budget. And, and a, a woman described her in a focus group to us recently as that young woman that ran the country for a while and destroyed it. But she is trying to argue that uh, she got the communication wrong 
but everything else about her platform was correct. But isn't that always what particularly conservative politicians argue? My policy is fine. We didn't manage to communicate. It's particularly what critics of the prime minister often say. Of course, the prime minister is doing the right thing. Hasn't quite managed to sell it properly. It goes alongside the prime minister is perfect. It's just his advisors or her advisors that are messing things up. Of which, of course, you probably have some experience. Uh, but, uh, But the reason that I think she is interesting is, A, this whole communication thing, it's only because I communicated wrong, seems to me to fundamentally misunderstand your job as a prime minister in a parliamentary yep. democracy, which is you communicate to the voters yep. who are in charge and they choose uh, the political party that they want to lead and that political party in turn chooses the prime minister. So communication is not an adjunct. But I think also uh, Liz Truss fundamentally misunderstood the potential democratic mandate she had because she is unusually libertarian for the modern Conservative Party and modern government. And libertarians have never been a very big part of our our electorate. I remember both Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher's advisers, you know, commenting on the fact that you need to understand that voters are broadly quite socially authoritarian in some ways and also quite left wing economically. So what do you mean by libertarian in this context? Well, so what do I mean by libertarian? You can tell me if you agree. So Liz Truss broadly believes the state does much too much. She wants to radically cut taxes. And she thinks that by cutting taxes, the economy will automatically grow so much that those tax revenues will um, exceed all expectations. The the way in which I suppose she differs from earlier libertarians is she wasn't very clear about in what way she wanted the state to shrink. She actually wanted to borrow quite a lot of money uh, to make this possible. But she likes to talk about too much regulation, too much state interference. She sounds much more like someone on the American right than someone traditionally but on not, the not, but, right. But not entirely different from what some people's impression of Margaret Thatcher would have been, at least rhetorically, if not necessarily in terms of practice. I agree. And I think this is a big part of the current Conservative Party is they have this image of who Margaret Thatcher was, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily bear that much relation to how she genuinely was as an electoral politician, how she communicated, what she backed, how carefully she moved. Mm-hmm. But but there is absolutely this image. Um, I guess one core difference is Margaret Thatcher won a mandate and she won a series of mandates for what she was doing. And Liz Truss did not. No. And and certainly Liz Truss, you know, it's an interesting feature. You talk about the Conservative Party being ideologically flexible. One of the attributes of the party these days is it seems to become rather more ideologically inflexible. And that, of course, you know, her, her election as leader was the product of an angst inside the Conservative Party that a Conservative government had presided over a substantial increase in taxation and a substantial increase in public spending, occasioned, of course, by the COVID pandemic and then subsequently the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, the, But for many Tory party members, this is not why they go out and knock on the streets for the Conservative Party, and that's what she managed uh, to appeal to. But, of course, appealing to Conservative members was one thing. Appealing to the electorate is indeed... Quite another. And I think, you know, it's worth just recalling that although we are now living at a time where we're beginning to think, oh, maybe the Labour Party might indeed win the next election. And might just even, maybe. I, I, <laughs> I, might, I, I, might, I might even get an overall majority. That perspective is only 12 months old. And it is a legacy of Liz Truss. I mean, in you know, uh, not not only did the the financial markets uh, tank in the wake of her uh, so-called fiscal event, but you know, Conservative support fell by six points in a matter of about six weeks. And in Premiership, now the only 
precedent for that, and of course it's the other half of why the Conservatives are where they are at the moment, is that the Partygate story also saw um, Tory support fall by six points again in a matter of little more uh, than six weeks. And it's those two things that basically have led us to the political situation that we are now in. But maybe we should move on to British social attitudes. Yes, we should talk about uh, what those electoral forces are and how they have changed. So, John, you are the person who presides over this social attitudes survey. What do you think people need to most understand about what has and hasn't changed over the last 40 years? Well, there there are two very striking contrasting patterns. And in a sense, they are about two of the crucial aspects of the role of the state. So one role of the state, which we've already talked about with respect to Liz Truss, is how much should it regulate, intervene or not in the economy and with what objectives. Okay, And those on the left argue that the state should intervene a great deal. Uh, Those on the right say it should intervene a little bit less. Those on the left are concerned about inequality. Those on the right more concerned about incentives. Okay, And that's one aspect of the state. The other aspect of the state is, in a sense, it's, it's the way in which we decide to what extent does society impose on its members moral codes, moral frameworks, even social norms and expectations. Right? We use the law on issues like abortion, marriage, etc., etc., to, to regulate uh, some of the activities as of individuals and individuals, some of the social and moral choices they make. Well, looking at those two broad functions, the big headline from this year's report is that when it comes to that regulation of individuals, their social and moral choices, we have, for the most part, and with one exception that doubtless we'll come on to, become much more liberal as a society. Uh, We are now um, much more relaxed about various forms of sexual practices. We're much more relaxed about various kinds of uh, family formation, etc., And that's also underpinned by, we we also run a a scale designed to measure how liberal or authoritarian people are. And that scale has moved quite clearly in a more liberal direction, particularly over the last decade or so. So so on this area, there has been a change in British society. But when it comes to the role of the state in intervening in the economy and how the big state should be, etc., etc., the message is that attitudes are cyclical that the public sometimes become rather keener on the state doing a bit more, and at sometimes they become rather keener on it doing somewhat less. A couple of obvious reasons for this. One is that, you know, frankly, when the state expands... People and want public, it to sink again. <laughs> and public services improve, they say, great, fantastic, can you please stop taking so much tax <laughs> office? And then, however, when they, the state cuts back and waiting lists get long... They come to a different perspective. And also, you know, if we get a shock like the financial crash, like COVID, again, public opinion shifts. But therefore, so in a sense, one of the messages for Liz Truss is you can't, as a politician, afford to be too ideological about the role of the state in the economy, because this is not an area where the public simply react on ideological grounds. Their attitudes also depend on circumstances. And I guess what's interesting about now is, first of all, we've just come out of these two huge expansions of the state because of the COVID and furlough and then the massive energy price subsidies in the wake of um, Ukraine. And yet it seems to me it's not obvious people necessarily think the state is much 
too big. And then the second thing that seems to me very interesting, given your kind of cyclical nature, is we're in this weird situation at the moment where we are simultaneously spending a lot of money. You know, most people, at least when I do focus groups, think that the NHS has been cut in real terms in recent years, when actually a lot of extra money has gone into it. More than that 350 billion a week on the side of the bus, a lot of money has gone into it. No, not as much as at some points in the past, of course. But but it's increased in real terms. Sure, of course. And we have more people. And and yet people's perception of public services is vastly worse. So -hmm. you don't have this kind of classic cycle of public services are much better now, can I pay a bit less tax? It's like I'm paying a lot of tax and my public services are terrible. Um, And it's interesting to see uh, how that emerges. So, for example, one of the things I found really interesting in your survey is that young people, younger people, which I think you define as under 30? 35. Under yeah, 35. But just that's, just, that's just for accounting purposes. I think yeah. it should be under 40 now until I hear <laughs> it. Um, uh, are sim- younger people are simultaneously more left-wing on lots of measures, yes. but, but aren't very keen on more tax. They yes. don't want the state to be bigger. And this is presumably partly because that contract between how much you pay and how much you get feels broken. And it certainly perhaps feels very different for younger people. So just to pick up on a couple of things you said. So um, for for most of the last 40 years, there hasn't been much difference between people in different age groups or people in different generations as to how left wing or right wing there are. It's not it's not been a major division. But in the course of the last three years or so, a gap has evolved whereby, uh, you know, the under 35s have become rather more clearly more left wing, much more concerned about inequality than our older people. Now, to some degree, then you kind of have to speculate about why this might have happened. But of course, the COVID pandemic, while it may have affected people of my age, nearly 70, much more so far as the health circumstances are concerned, um, in terms so far as the economic uh, consequences are concerned, you know, getting into the labour market, educational experience, and of course, even dealing with lockdown, given that many younger people are living in limited housing accommodation, for which they're now also, also paying a great deal in, in, the, in the private rental sector, that you know, some of the inequalities of society that, as it were, exposed by COVID arguably might have affected them more and that may have an influence on them. But why then doesn't that translate into support for the state? Well, of course, you've talked about, yes, indeed, support for... We are spending more on health. We're spending more on social care, although arguably still not as enough as we need to. But the consequence of the ageing of society and the consequence of the fact that older people tend to need more health care means that more of our public spending is being spent on older people. Meanwhile, increasingly, younger people, at least those who've been to university, are effectively being taxed at a much higher rate on their income because they're being asked to repay their university tuition fees, which, of course, the young people of my generation never had to do. We still had student grants, so albeit there were many fewer of us. So, uh, the, so you can see why, therefore, perhaps why, although younger people are concerned about inequality, they may, in fact, regard some of the ways in which the state currently does spending as contributing to that inequality rather than necessarily providing a solution. And I think this point about the difference between the young people's experience of the state and older people's experience of the state is very important because older people tend to vote. Indeed. Uh, and there are more of them. We're in ageing society. And so what you've seen over the last five years, and, and there's no sign that Labour are going to change this, is 
when it when we think about how we're going to pay for social care, for example, which is primarily going to the old, mm-hmm. we tax working income. We tax mm-hmm. um, what we still insist on calling national insurance, although it's no such thing. Yes. Um, and so young people tend to pay more for it. Yes. And we are desperate to maintain benefits for older people, but we're much less willing to increase working age Indeed, benefits. we've been cutting working age benefits. I mean, not just the current uh, under the Conservatives, but even under Labour. Labour wasn't very keen on working age benefits either. Although I suppose the exception to that, which you also brought out in your survey, is childcare. Because if you went back to 1983, I, it's a massive shock to me that 1983 is 40 years ago. Of course it is. <laughs> but uh, 1983... Slightly before you were born. It was right, right, just your... two years before Thank you for asking my age, John. I appreciate that. The idea that the state would pay for childcare must have been quite extraordinary. I mean, first of all, the assumption would have been that women were still not working in the early years uh, and providing the childcare. And it just wasn't part of what the state did. Yes. I mean, I again, I can remember, um, you know, John Major's government in the 1990s when this issue first began began to arise, arguing within itself about whether or not we should be encouraging women with young children to go out to work or not. Indeed, you know, there was a whole debate about to what extent uh, are, um, you know, under fives better off being cared off, cared at home, or whether they're better off in nursery or childminder or, or whatever. I think now the research probably suggests that, you know, it's not obvious that one has a great advantage over the other and then some have, you know, they're very advantage. But the point is what's happened gradually not least because of the ageing of our population and the need, therefore, to increase our working age population, where we partly did that by taking a lot of migrants in, and the other has been to get women into the workforce. And uh, certainly, you know, in the wake of all of that, you know, one of the things that certainly changed um, is indeed, you know, our attitudes towards women going out to work. So we still had, I mean, it was a minority at that stage, but it was still the, uh, the case Back in the 1980s, you know, around a quarter or so, people said, yeah, yeah, actually, a woman's job is to look after the home and it's the man's to get out the money. Now, that's become very much a minority view now. So our attitudes towards, well, who should be putting out the bins, which I think was the famous question that Theresa May and her husband had to answer, or, um, you know, who who, who does the washing and the ironing, (laughs) etc., etc., you know, we were still had quite stereotypical attitudes in the 1980s. So, you know, repair, you know, doing with repairs was a man's job. Dealing with the washing, the ironing was a woman's job. Now, attitudes are still not, as it were, completely um, uh, neutral. But um, we are now much more in a situation where we say at least it's both equally. Although when you start asking people about practice, it's changed. It's not as stereotypical as it was but you know what the women still report i'm doing the washing and the ironing for the most part and the men still report and yes it's us what we do the repair so in practice still we've not caught up even with perhaps our own social attitudes i'm very proud to say my husband does all the cooking and I do the IKEA flat pack furniture which is about about as far as i can go well that, 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 um, that but we're bucking the trend um <laughs> let's pause there we'll be back after this break Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Diving into this a bit more because it, on the face of it, as you say, there's been this huge shift in social attitudes, particularly around women, but also around... Sex people support same-sex marriages yeah. now. There are lots of terms. You have this lovely thing in in your chapter where if you brought someone from 1983, they they simply wouldn't even recognise many of the terms we use. We talk about partners. Yeah. They certainly wouldn't know what non-binary meant. I suspect they wouldn't yeah. know what trans meant. You know, this is a very different yeah. world. We've changed our language. In the we changed our language. Yeah. But it is also the case that there's still some tension in public opinion, I think. So, for example, if you ask a lot of women, would they rather spend more hours looking after their children or go to work? Quite a lot of people would, would like to do more of it. And it's certainly true that... Uh, public opinion suggests that the ideal situation, or it's, uh, the most popular single ideal uh, situation that that is off that people are, are in favour of, is perhaps one partner working full time, and the other one working part time. And of course, they tend to say uh, the woman. Although it has to be said, you know, there's quite a lot of support now for the idea that perhaps both should be working part time. So um, the idea of flexible working is there, but it's still somewhat gendered. And then there are there are other areas, or maybe just a couple of other areas, which seem to buck this more socially liberal trend. Uh, and so two things that struck me, I'd be interested in your views. The first is that the group that remains substantially more socially conservative than the rest of the population are non-Christian religious people, which given the population presumably mostly means Hindus and Muslims, who are quite a fast-growing part of our country. And there have been other polls to say, for example, that London is the most homophobic part of the country mm-hmm. because it has the highest ethnic minority population. They tend to be much more socially conservative. So the highest levels of religious intelligence. Yeah, yeah, and so that, you know, given that that's a growing part of the population, actually is it necessarily the case that we're going to carry on getting more socially Yeah, OK. Liberal? So I think there's two things to say. First of all, I think it's just worth saying, not least for people of your generation, just how much attitudes towards same-sex relationships in particular, and indeed towards sex outside of marriage, have changed. So if we go back to uh, you know 1983, when British social attitudes started, only 17% of people, only 17% of people said there's nothing wrong at all of two adults of the same sex having sexual relationships with each other. And indeed, not long after that, the AIDS scare first came in. AIDS was particularly uh, prevalent amongst uh, uh, male homosexuals. Um, And indeed, public opinion even shifted even in a more censorious direction. 
Now, of course, we are in a position where, you know, two thirds of people say nothing wrong at all. But as a society now, we, we, we use the term homophobic quite often, quite, and again, that's one of the ways in which our language has changed is that now views that 40 years ago on this subject would have been very common. And indeed, even 20 years ago, were not that uncommon, are now regarded as widely socially unacceptable. And I think sometimes people forget how recent and how dramatic the change has been. And I think I would probably argue that, you know, attitudes towards same-sex relations and also attitudes to sex outside marriage are, are perhaps amongst the biggest changes in social attitudes. Although, interestingly, it's worth noting, because some people then say, oh, well, what about the future of the family? Our attitudes towards being unfaithful, to use an, a traditional term, infidelity. You know, you're, you've got a partner and then you have sex with somebody else. We are as still as censorious about that as we were 40 years ago. So it might now be serial monogamy rather than necessarily lifetime monogamy, but we still believe in monogamy. So that's one point you make. Now, I'd come back to the point you make about uh, a change. Now, quite a lot of these change of attitudes is indeed the result of one generation being more liberal than another. So older people, you know, leave the electorate, go to a better place, and they are replaced by younger generations who have been increasingly more liberal. But that isn't all that's going on. It's also true that, you know, frankly, today's older people have probably, many of them, got different views about same-sex relationships than they had 20, 30 uh, years ago. So and that, I, I remember that's this also happened. When, when Cameron was, David Cameron was putting through the same-sex marriage legislation, this was enormously controversial among his own yes. members. And there were... Uh, several people who then became cabinet ministers who voted against it. Yes. And it was really not clear where the public view was. It seemed very, very split. And now it seemed, and this is only, what, a de- less than a decade Well, it depends. Right? I mean, if you go back, if you go back to the, uh, the, the point when we introduced civil partnerships, which is, what, 2005, that is literally the point where the balance of public opinion shifted from saying, um, well, you know, it, it's hardly ever wrong, to um, more people saying that than saying, you know, basically it's usually okay, to, to being turned around. So, so, so the, the civil partnerships was, was a perfect piece of political timing in that it was, they were introduced at a time just when attitudes were moving towards it being acceptable as opposed to unacceptable. But now, of course, Cameron then got on to the other issue about, you know, well, but these, some of these folk want to get married and they've got another issue. And now, of course, we've got we've got equal marriage and we've got equal civil partnerships. So, you know, it, 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 it's designed to try to help everybody. But sure, I mean, and, you know, the Conservative Party, Conservative voters have always been somewhat less liberal than Labour voters. But, I mean, come back to the point about, about generational change. Now, certainly what is true is that... Um, I mean, people from a religious background, particularly people who attend any kind of church, mosque, temple or whatever, have always been less liberal on this issue. And you still see the Church of England now, sure. um, you know, struggling with this issue, partly because of the international pressures. But, you know, um, but everyone's abandoning the Church of England. Hmm? Everyone's abandoning the Church of England. They well, don't go then, anymore, no, whereas sure, other course, religions are not. Uh, of course, exa- exactly. <laughs> and of course, you know, but part of the reason why subsequent generations have been more liberal is because few of them have been attending any kind of religious service. But you're right. Immigration is the one thing... Uh, from from those minority backgrounds, Hindus, Muslims, etc., is the one thing that has in part 
counteracted the secularization of Britain. Um, and of course, insofar as that population is likely to increase, it may, I mean, what is already a slowing of that process may slow it even further. Of course, the interesting question that then arises is, well, are the forces of secularization that have seen a dramatic decline in religious attendance in the last 40 years eventually also going to have an impact on second and third generations of those who are currently from a Muslim Hindu population, etc. And that, in a sense, is a $64,000 question. But certainly, uh, those who belong to those religions must be very aware uh, and uh, very well aware of what's happened to practicing Christianity uh, for the most part. It's become, you know, it's less than 10% of us now who attend any kind of religious service uh, regularly once a week. And then I guess the, the, the last thing that I thought was interesting to chat about on this is the one area where it seems over the last few years, we haven't been asking it for 40 years, no. people have become more conservative, which is on transgender. Yeah. Where you see a real closing of opinion over the last, I think, three years. Yes. In terms of whether people think effectively transgender women are women, transgender men are Yeah, men. and whether they can get this legal recognition without medical intervention, uh, exactly. certification, etc. Um, yeah. and, and that's presumably partly because, and we still find this, most people don't really know what it means. They don't know what the term means. They still get very confused about it. Yeah. But also we're just beginning to hear about it. And I guess, yeah. again, another interesting question is whether, is this, this and this is a huge debate in, in Westminster, is this like same-sex marriage, uh, where people will become more and more accepting and it will seem extraordinary 30 years from now that we were limiting people's ability to um, change their gender? Or is this a fundamentally different thing, which does have infringements on people's rights and questions about safety and prisons, and therefore it's just not the same kind of social question? Well, I think certainly... One of the things that marks it out um, is that, you know, you know, previous, you know, equalities groups, you know, for the most part, we don't see much of a conflict between, you know, uh, you know protecting people by uh, on the, from gender discrimination or uh, and at the same time trying to protect them from racial discrimination or indeed even, um, you know, religious discrimination. We kind of think we can pursue all of these things and there isn't a conflict. Clearly, one of the aspects of the debate about transgender is indeed, for a whole variety of it's not just also about safety, it's also, you know, most obviously in the area of sport, you know, to what extent it actually undermines the ability of women to, uh, you know, achieve what they want to do. There are also arguments about whether or not we would accurately measure the position of women's in the, women in the labour market if we were to do it on the basis of gender identification, etc., etc., there is one of the arguments, at least, is that is is there a conflict between providing easier recognition of transgender people in law and um, the position of women? Um, and it's and, and and I think this is where it is different in the sense that we have it's created a conflict between a group that's being protected by equalities legislation, being promoted by equalities legislation, whose position in society, although many women will still say it's not equal enough, etc., etc., but, you know, has changed quite considerably, and a group which has come on relatively recently into the scene. I mean, I think I would say, I, I mean, I would say uh, about a couple of other things. One is that 
Of course, it is true that younger people are less. Yep. Right. So we may find it proves to be generational. And have younger people also become relatively more conservative? To a degree, yes. Because of course, what's happened is that as the debate has started, the debate has certainly been one that those who've been campaigning for the change have, frankly, for perhaps for a variety of reasons, not won, won the argument. Yeah. Uh, they've not. They've not won the argument. Um, uh, so uh, you know, and and that may be a short term. You know, I already said. You know, in the sh- early on in the argument about same-sex relationships, things did become more socially conservative, and they uh, changed out. The other thing I think one should say it is it is I think very much a question and an argument about legal recognition. If you ask people whether or not a man should be allowed to live socially as a woman and vice versa. On that, people seem to be fairly relaxed. Okay, it's to do with the legal ramifications of gender recognition, uh, and some of the debate that's 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 emerged out of that, uh, where people have not been uh, have not been convinced, and also be particularly concerned about how young it happens for people, and some of the arguments about, you know, puberty blockers and all the rest of it. It's, so, there's, so there's concern about there's concern about uh, some of the uh, some of those issues, but socially. People want people to live as they wish to live. Indeed. Yeah. And to that extent, at least, our more liberal society is still with us. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I think we probably ought to pause there. I, there's so many subjects that we could come back to. Uh, and we haven't even touched on net zero, which is one of the great debates of today. But we'll come back to that. we'll come back, we'll come back, to, back that. to that next week. Yeah. Um, and also talk about the thing we talked about at the beginning, which is this huge split between the membership of political parties and voters, because it's conference season in a couple of weeks where all of the political parties descend on cities across England and lay out their stalls. The the Liberal Democrats descend on Bournemouth this weekend, Rachel. And and as usual, I had forgotten that the Liberal Democrats (laughs) uh, were having their conference, but I look forward to it before the main events of uh, Conservatives and Labour. So that's it from Trendy for this week. I'm Rachel Wolfe. New episodes are published every Thursday. Do rate and review us. It really helps people find us and know that this conversation is happening and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. And I'm John Curtis, and thank you very much for listening. Tortoise. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.